Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Let's bring in somebody else into this conversation now, legal analyst and, of course, host of Bloomberg Law, which airs weeknights at 10 p.m. Eastern. It's a must listen. June Grosso joins us now. June, we have the decision then from the Supreme Court on the subpoenas. Take us through the May arguments, because there was a lot of questioning from many of the judges on both sides. So some of the Democratic uh, appointees were asking questions that didn't make it obvious which way they would vote. And equally, the Trump appointees. Right, Vani, it was really difficult to tell from those oral arguments where the justices were going to go. You know, sometimes you think you know, sometimes you don't, but there it was just a confusion. But what was clear was that the justices were more on the same page, were more amenable to the argument by Vance, the, the district attorney's office in Manhattan, because of several things. One, because this is grand jury secrecy, so remember, I don't know what Kimberly has already said, but this is a grand jury. So these documents, even when Vance gets them, when the district attorney gets them, are not going to be made public. The only time they might be made public if there's an actual criminal indictment in that case. So the justices are sure that this is going to be kept secret. They asked a lot of questions about grand jury secrecy. I remember Justice Alito questioning whether or not you could really count on grand jury secrecy or whether the newspapers and the media outlets would be able to get hints or be able to see the documents. So I think that was very important to them. Also, it was very, it was limited. And the the, uh, attorney arguing for the district attorney's office agreed that it was a very limited document. He said there were, you know, there were boundaries to it. Whereas with the congressional subpoena, which I'm still hitting my refresh button to see if it <laughs> yes. has come out. 20 with, seconds, with con- perhaps. Maybe we may get it con- at 1020. With the congressional subpoena, the, the lawyer who argued wouldn't give any kind of limits on what the subpoena could be. So I think that made a difference. Also, I just want to point out that if you remember, um, Justice Kavanaugh, who concurred here, was part of the Whitewater investigation. So it, it would, he'd have to be explaining somehow how he could rule against this, but still take part in that broad investigation of the Clintons. So, Drew, that kind of goes to where I wanted to go, which was... Can, will this data really remain uh, private as it relates to the uh, New York uh, court? I mean, it just seems like it's just, you know, rife I, for potential leaks. I think, I actually think it will. Mm. I have a lot of faith in the grand jury system. This is, this is such an important concept, the fact that when you go to a grand jury, it's secret, that everything that happens in the grand jury was secret. I can't imagine any prosecutor in that office breaking that rule. And I think that the grand jurors are, you know, very, very much follow their their secrecy oath. So um, I just can't see that it would leak. As well, June suggests that that would actually go to the main problem that the the justices were having along electoral grounds. And actually, we're getting another headline, High Court largely backing Trump in House financial record bid. So this would actually back what I've just said as Mm. well. The idea that, you know, 
the House was seeking a lot of information. Some of that was pretty vague and the Supreme Court seemed to be uncomfortable with that. Another headline, High Court orders tougher scrutiny of House's Trump subpoenas. So maybe this isn't over yet. Let me give those two headlines again. The High Court, that's the Supreme Court, largely blocking, largely backing Trump in the House financial record bid. It's telling the lower courts to reconsider the Trump subpoenas. So let me ask both of you, Kimberly and June, the Supreme Court is actually sending this back down to the lower courts. It wants the lower courts to reconsider the Trump subpoenas. What does that mean? They were, they were, they were very divided on the various subpoenas. Who wants to take that, June? Well, I think what this means is, the first thing it means is you're not going to see these records before the election campaign, mm. before, the, not before November. Because you think about how long it takes. They would have to be sending it back, they'd have to rebrief everything, and then a decision would have to come. So there's no way you're going to see these before the November elections. It, then we'll see what happens as, as far as the elections. But it's going to be a long process. And this is what people were predicting, that... This is a way sort of a a way out for the court. It's a middle ground for the court. Send it back to the lower courts. It's a way to sort of kick the can down the road. The court does this a lot. They they issue opinions and then they say, okay, take it lower courts. You decide. And then sometimes it comes back up. But it's going to take quite a long time. So, uh, Kim, I want to bring you back in here, Kimberly Robertson. Um, How do you perceive kind of what the court is trying to do here? Is this kind of a a win for uh, President Trump at this point? Well, uh, at least in the congressional cases, it seems like a temporary win and a win on the objective of not having those financial documents leak before the 2020 election. But this is something that the Supreme Court does a lot. It kind of takes a middle of the approach road, uh, road that June was talking about and kind of gives half of a win to one side and half of a win to another. So um, this is not surprising from the court. I have to say something that's interesting June? is yeah. that Chief Justice John Roberts wrote both majority opinions. And, you know, as Kim and I have talked about, uh, Chief Justice Roberts is in every 5-4 decision this court has come to this term. Chief Justice Roberts is the deciding vote. And here he, vo- he wrote both of these opinions. I'm anxious to read them. <laughs> yes, um, we're not going to let you go read them just yet, though. We have more questions. So Justice Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito dissented in the Supreme Court grand jury ruling, so I guess they didn't want even the grand jury to get Trump's tax returns, assuming that that was sort of a, you know, an overreach. Right. There was a very, during the, the oral arguments, and as I mentioned before, Justice Alito expressed, you know, concern that these would be leaked. But during the oral arguments, there was also, a, a, you know, a very interesting uh, questioning of the president's attorney, because the president's attorney, Jay Sekulow, went for this really broad immunity. He said the president is absolutely immune from criminal investigation, even while in office. So that was this broad, broad stance he took. So I'm I'm anxious to see exactly where uh, Thomas and Alito thinks the line should be, if they say. But it just, it shows you, and also the seven to two, um, a lot depends on what Justice Roberts actually wrote in his opinion to see, you know, you don't have the history, I don't see at the beginning, that you do in the, um, he, during the, in the other case, the, the uh, Manhattan District Attorney's case, there was this long history he gave that presidents from Monroe to Clinton have accepted this ruling that the chief executive is subject to subpoena and have uniformly agreed to testify 
when called in criminal proceedings. So maybe that's the difference. But this is going to be, this is a huge separation of powers issue here, as, as I'm sure Kim, uh, Kimberly said before, because the question now is, how much has Congress's oversight authority been stripped away? So, Kimberly, what do you think the response is going to be uh, from, or I guess, I guess what, what do you think that are the next steps here? Well, the next steps is that these cases will go back down to the courts from which they came, um, and there'll be some a closer look at the um, at the House's reasoning for why it needed uh, these cases. Again, these are just coming out, but it looks like the Supreme Court wants the lower courts to take a better account of the separation of powers problems uh, that the Trump that Trump is asserting here, and kind of do more work on that issue. It's a win for Cyrus Vance, for the, the New York District Attorney. June, on precedent, what can the District Attorney do beyond just serving these subpoenas and serving these documents to the grand jury? Is there anything that he can use this as a precedent for? Well, um, we'd have to see what happens. I, I think what was going to happen, he's already served the subpoenas. And these subpoenas, as you mentioned, are to third parties. They're to uh, his subpoena. Actually, is is just to the accounting firm. Um, and so he's. So the question is, you know, they'll turn it over right away. They've said before that they're going to turn it over. So there'll be that turnover. They'll look at the the information there, and then they'll start investigating. You know, they have investigators. They'll start investigating what's behind. If they find anything that, it, and as you mentioned, this is a huge amount of material that's going to come in. So they'll look at it and they'll see if there are any other questions, what they might decide to do. I mean, grand jury has broad powers to look in directions that a normal jury wouldn't be doing. And so, it, as you probably heard the expression that, you know, a prosecutor can get a grand jury to indict a ham sandwich. And uh, so the pro it's, a lot depends on how much, you know, and, and Vance is politically motivated. So a lot depends on how much he wants to push this grand jury, what they're going to do with those with that information. But uh, you've got to know it's it's going to <laughs> there's going to be a lot of pressure on his office now, since he is the only uh, office in the country that's going to have those um, uh, yep. those, uh, that information. A very interesting conversation coming up next now because it is time for Bloomberg Opinion and a great opinion piece by the former chair of the FDIC during the great financial crisis, it should be noted. Sheila Baer, she is on everybody's lips. Uh, she's a household name, really. She's also founding director of the Volcker Alliance, which aims to build trust in government. And she is the founding chair of the Systemic Risk Council. Now, after her at the FDIC, the vice chairman was Tom Honig, who is also, of course, a Kansas City Fed president. And they have a great opinion piece out on the Bloomberg today or in recent days. Banks' risks during the pandemic aren't clear. There is a lot to unpack here. So, Sheila Bear, welcome. Thank you for having me. Great being with you. Talk to us about how risky banks are these days, because right now we're seeing headlines about, you know, employees being laid off and so on. And we're not actually thinking too much, I think, about how, you know, how strong fundamentally banks are. Didn't we fix right. that post-financial crisis? <laughs> <laughs> well, we did. I mean, they were certainly much better capitalized going into this crisis than they were uh, during the great financial crisis back in 2008, 2009. But that's not saying much because they were really very highly leveraged uh, back then. So we started from a low baseline, yes, lots more capital, 
which was good because they were in a much better position going into this. And, and that's, that's in, in, uh, in large part due to the reforms we put in place after the great financial crisis. So um, we shouldn't be overly confident, though. This is a very severe crisis. And uh, capital levels have been declining, actually, leading into this crisis. The Fed over the last few years have been letting banks on average, uh, distribute more in capital than they were earning, uh, which depletes their capital levels. And so um, on, on a non-risk-weighted basis, we actually saw capital ratios declining for the last few years. So we shouldn't, we shouldn't be overconfident. There was a bad trend going into this, uh, which is unfortunate because usually when you're in, in a good economic time, it's towards the end of the cycle. The smart thing to do is to raise capital, not, not to lower it. So, Sheila, give us a sense of kind of what your, your takeaways were from – uh, the recently uh, released stress tests. Right. So I, I think the problem was they just were, so we we had a sensitivity analysis assessment and then we had this distress test. So the stress test really didn't tell us much of anything because they were based on economic stress scenarios pre-pandemic. And what we're, what we're experiencing now is, is more severe than what even the most severe uh, assumptions of the, the stress test that were announced February pre-pandemic. Were And also, you're looking at bank balance sheets as of the end of the year. Last year, those have grown significantly uh, because of the crisis. And ironically, uh, the Fed, this is something I supported back when I was chair of the FGIC and later as an advocate at the, at the SRC, Systemic Risk Council, to require as part of the stress test to show that banks can expand their balance sheets and still have adequate levels of capital. Ironically, the Fed had done away from that. They'd weakened the stress test. That was one of the many ways they'd weakened it going into this. So, I don't, the stress test results, which were firm specific, I don't have a lot of confidence in them. There were, there were some numbers that were frightening, even though they were, you know, uh, were stressed under much more benign economic uh, circumstances. As I said in my piece with Tom Honig, the leverage ratios were still quite low, which is a, a, a non-risk-weighted uh, measure of, of uh, financial strength of the bank. That one went down, uh, Goldman Sachs actually dipped down to 3.5%. That was under, under pre-pandemic conditions. Then we had the sensitivity analysis that in, tried to incorporate pandemic conditions, but they, they didn't give us the leverage ratios. They didn't give us firm-specific results. So that's a long way of answering your question. We really don't know uh, how safe these banks are. And if anything, I think the Fed well-intentioned, but just created more confusion and, and angst about this. It, it was not a reassuring exercise. Has the president been set now, Sheila, that the Fed will sort of backstop everything? I mean, the financial yeah, crisis backstops were supposed to be a one-off thing, but it does seem like the, the Fed will backstop anything these days. Well, they are. They kind of, uh, you know, I, I supported uh, intervention in the corporate debt markets. We had so many uh, companies that were just barely investment grade. I was worried if they dropped into junk territory, they wouldn't be able to access uh, credit markets anymore debt markets anymore. And so you would have that would exacerbate the layoffs. So I thought, you know, there's a lot of problems with how we got to all those overlevered corporations to begin with. And some of them uh, were took on far too much debt. But be that as it may, I think it was the wise thing to do to intervene. But I guess I was thinking more that they would do primary uh, market intervention to, yeah. to help the companies as employers the, 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 the lion's share of the intervention has been in the secondary market, which, which also helps them issue new debt, but it really is more beneficial to investors. So it is concerning. And, and then they're not, I guess they just recently said maybe they're going to taper off a bit now. But yeah, I just, I, the last thing we want is for everybody in the 
country to be too big to fail because J-PAL pretty much said, we're going to backstop uh, these markets. And um, that had a, a tremendously uh, beneficial impact for opening up corporate debt markets. But again, some of these ban- some of these companies uh, probably do need to be restructured. They should be having a higher cost of capital and to, and to let this be, we should be trying to figure out a way to exit this now. That was a temporary um, jolt that we needed to provide to the corporate debt markets, but really they should be thinking about their exit strategy now. Okay, Sheila, so bottom line, how concerned are you or how concerned should we be about our nation's banks right here? Well, I, I think we should be very wary. I think, I think uh, the leadership in Congress, instead of trying to you know, have election year deregulatory giveaways and pressure the Fed to do that, I think the pressure should be on the regulators to hold firm Suspend dividends, that's one good way to bolster bank balance sheets. $30 billion left uh, FDIC-insured banks in the first quarter. That $30 billion that stayed on their balance sheets that would have supported about a half a trillion dollars of expanded capacity and resiliency. So we should suspend dividends. We should be bolstering bank balance sheets, requiring new equity issuance if, if, if necessary. I mean, why take a chance? Nobody's going to criticize you for having too much capital in the banking system. But there's going to be a lot of adverse uh, fallout uh, for politically and more importantly for the real economy if this pandemic crisis turns into a financial crisis because banks start failing. So suspend those dividends. Look at maybe requiring that they issue equity, um, the the weaker ones. And uh, that's that's the direction I think that the Fed should be going. And hopefully Congress and the Trump administration will stand down and let them do those hard decisions or or even better uh, support them and encourage them to do so. Sheila, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate your perspective. Sheila Baer, former chairman of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, giving us uh, her thoughts on the banks. All right, so COVID-19 bankrupting American companies at a relentless pace. And boy, is it 111 companies right now and expect to see more on NIBCY today. A great story with fantastic graphics. Let's bring in the author, Davide Shiliuzzo, who joins us now to talk about these retailers, airlines, restaurants, but also sports leagues and even an archdiocese or more. Davide, just first of all, give us a rundown of the sort of variety of companies and entities that are declaring. Yeah, good morning, um, Bonnie. It, it's really a cross-section of, of corporate America. That's what it, the interesting part of this exercise is. There are names like Hertz and JCPenney, uh, even Brooks Brothers recently that, uh, you know, nearly everyone is familiar with. But in the research that we did for this story, we also found a lot of smaller companies uh, whose stories that gone largely unnoticed. And as you said, there is a lot of uh, retail restaurants um, in there. Uh, a lot of energy uh, companies with the fall in oil prices and entertainment sectors that are directly impacted by COVID. But then you find also a lot of companies that had financial issues from before um, and for, for whom COVID was just like, you know, the last, the last drop. Um, the archdiocese case that you, that you brought about is, you know, the, it's the New Orleans archdiocese. It's one of over 20 that you know, over the past several years of used bankruptcy as a way to settle sexual abuse allegations. Um, so they obviously had issues before, but COVID is, is just one more uh, challenge that they faced. And in their core papers, they said, you know, a drop in collections and, and offerings uh, added to an already strained budget. Mm. So, David, you know, it's interesting. I think what we've heard just anecdotally about some of these bankruptcies in certain industries is that the ones that went in to this pandemic, the companies that went into this pandemic with a uh, 
over lever balance sheet, obviously the most at risk here. Are you finding that's still the case, or are we finding companies that are you know relatively healthy in terms of capitalization, they're also being pushed to the brink? I think we've found both. Um, there are definitely companies that were struggling with like heavy debt loads from before. Um, and in some cases, those were the result of leverage buyouts. Um, but in other cases, and especially with some of the smaller companies, um, the companies were doing fine. They weren't over-levered, uh, and they just happened to be in sectors that are directly impacted by COVID. So, for example, um, I interviewed the owner of Bounce for Fun, which is a, a small company uh, outside of Dallas that rents out water slides and, and bounce houses. Um, the company <laughs> was on track for a record year, um, and business was, was going exceptionally well. Uh, the problem is they had 100% cancellations as soon as uh, shutdown orders came in. Uh, and the owner, uh, you know, he said he got a PPP loan that lasted for a couple of months, but he just didn't see a way for the business to continue, uh, not over the next few months, but probably not even the next season. So the one I found particularly sad is the XFL. I mean, whether or not you're a fan of Vince McMahon and all that he's done, this was a way for football players who maybe weren't fully able to continue at the highest levels or didn't make it to the highest levels to play, right? It was a a pro football league. It declared bankruptcy and and fired about 500 football players. Alpha Entertainment was the, uh, the company there. Is there any chance that companies like this will come out of this maybe smaller, more streamlined, but still an entity? Absolutely. I mean, I guess it depends on the sector and whether there are, you know, willing buyers for the company or its limbed-down version of the company or its assets. Um, but, you know, filing for bankruptcy doesn't necessarily mean you're going out of business for good. So some of these companies may reemerge uh, in a different form. They may be bought by a competitor or an organization um, that is active in that in that space. Um, we have come across a few cases where the company is actually liquidating. So they're selling off all of their assets and shutting down for good. But I would say that's not the majority of cases that we've come across so far. So, David, how bad is this going to get or how bad could this get? Uh, do you expect to see, you know, an acceleration of these bankruptcies over the next several months? It remains to be seen. You, if you look at the timeline, uh, we definitely see a few cases in May. Then we had a big increase during April, May, uh, and June. And, you know, we, we started seeing uh, quite a few cases in July as well. Um, I think much will depend on how much access to financing uh, these companies have, both in terms of, you know, capital markets, if they're large enough, or, uh, you know, loan from banks or government programs if they are smaller. Uh, obviously, some of the stimulus that was put in place is running out, like in the case of, of PPP. Um, so you can rule out the possibility that as the effect of that stimulus uh, kind of fades away, uh, you may see more cases for sure. Davide, thanks so much for joining us. Davide Esigli Uzo, certainly the name of the day. Corporate finance reporter for Bloomberg News, bringing us a fascinating story uh, about, uh, unfortunately, this relentless uh, path of uh, uh, bankruptcies that we're starting to see as a result of the pandemic. March 16th low, up almost 90%, still down a year to date, but up 90% from that March low. Just extraordinary continued volatility, but crypto is here to stay. Uh, To get some latest, we welcome Rich Rosenblum. He's co-founder 
and co-head of trading at GSR based in New York City. Uh, Rich, thanks so much for joining us here. Give us a sense of kind of maybe just how crypto and blockchain and Bitcoin and all those things have kind of performed over the last several months of this new world that we find ourselves in? That's a great question. Um, if you look at Bitcoin it's, itself over the last two months, it's been mired in a, a rather thin range between the high thousands to, to 10,000. But I think what's, what's more interesting is that you have a whole parallel ecosystem that even though it was fueled by Bitcoin, it's uh, rather in independent. And I say that since the traditional financial market has focused on Bitcoin as proverbial digital gold, but there's this entire ecosystem that serves a, a variety of other functions. And um, even though on a broad scale, the market could say, I believe more in Bitcoin, I'm not as focused on altcoins. If you take a, a smaller snapshot, such as, as this week, uh, Bitcoin's rallied a few percent from 9,000 to 9,400, you know, adding uh, roughly 10 billion of market value. But if you take two other cryptos that are in the top 15, they've added over 20 billion of market value and rallied in these three days alone between 15 and 40 percent. So I think there's there's a lot of action in the space that doesn't get it quite enough focus as it should, because I think that uh, the broad market is just focused on the, the big bell, bellwether, which is Bitcoin. But um, in terms of the activity in the space, for groups that are, are more uh, looking for the you know, activity within the crypto natives, uh, GSR, we, we trade with uh, exchanges, we still take business with uh, the miners, with the issuers. Uh, we're doing more business in the altcoin space uh, than in Bitcoin. And I think that's really the, the story of this week since uh, we're seeing a bit of a, a mini altcoin boom. So if you're looking at Bitcoin prices and seeing them you know, up or down a percent per day, uh, you're missing that there's some um, other assets that are up 35 percent in a, in a single day. And I think that uh, some of these groups, it might be that it appears more speculation and it's based on you know, Chinese economy operating back at full cylinders. And there's some trading elements that there's a momentum trade. People want to buy um, uh, the groups that are, are meeting new highs. But I think from speaking to these projects directly, there's a lot of building um, onto these ecosystems, and we're going to see the, the benefits of these products being built as we move out of that prototype phase and to more of a stage where you see the emerging crypto economy as one where it's more of its own uh, tech uh, ecosphere of its own. Yeah, whatever happened to all of the companies that were trying to build out the blockchain and, and the ecosphere and then sort of ran into a little bit of difficulty right when everyone thought that they were you know, taking over the world? Yeah, I, I think that there's always cycles of, uh, of hype and bust for, for any new products, especially if it's uh, tech-focused um, and might have gotten you know, too much attention to certain projects. But if you look at early-stage in investing, angel investing, most of the projects are, are not going to succeed in the end. And as long as there's going to be still a handful of, of very successful projects, then they can remain leaders in this in the space and be a, a good place to invest for the future. So I think that the hype in 2017 um, you know, was early for Bitcoin itself. And at that point, I think you need more infrastructure to be in place. And we're, we're in a world's different place as far as uh, you know, custody, um, clearing, uh, execution. Um, but I think there are some other um, parts of the ecosystem that they just need some more time to, to play out. And if you look at the you know, 3,000 different ICOs, um, I'm sure that uh, the bulk of them 
aren't going to succeed, just like any 3,000 groups of uh, tech companies that are, are brand new. But, you know, if there's a, a hundred that end up uh, powerhouses and changing, um, you know, the, the global ecosystem, then, you know, I think it's still going to be a, a good sign for things to come and uh, the decades uh, that we are to see since, um, you know, looking at it now, the baseball framework, we're, we're certainly very much in the, the second, if not the first inning. So, Rich, kind of where are we in terms of adoption of crypto as an investment asset class by institutional investors? I know you trade with a lot of folks out there. Kind of where do you, where do you think we are there? So in terms of the saturation, the, all the data would point to um, decently high saturation as much as 30%. But I think that that might be reaching that um, an institution tangentially has some type of access to some investment related to crypto. But I think there's some demographic issues in which um, age-wise, you know, people that are part of the older generation, they still feel that even if Bitcoin goes up, they don't know if that's a, a real gain. It seems like it's some type of, uh, you know, internet currency that can't be translated into real dollars versus uh, millennials or younger generations, you know, below 30 years old. They tend to believe more in crypto than they do in the normal stock market. Um, and so I think that, you know, give it five, 10 years, these demographics are certainly going to be you know, in favor of, of crypto investing. But as far as today, um, while Bitcoin you know, is a powerhouse and gets a lot of attention from, from both the media and investors, it still wouldn't be one of the top 20 stocks in the S&P. So I think that uh, if that saturation in terms of people going, buying and putting in their portfolio is more at a 15%, yeah, I think that's, yes. that's pretty pretty good, and there's room to build. Rich, thank you. Fascinating discussion. Rich Rosenblum is co-founder and co-head of trading at GSR, which trades in digital assets and provides derivatives and volatility hedging products as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.